G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news, worker stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in the Melbourne studios of 3CR on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Leading up to the recent fires, there was an acrimonious fight going on in Victoria around the role of professional firefighters and the volunteer status of the country fire authority. It would be fair to say that the Liberals characterised the campaign to extend the coverage of the United Firefighters Union members, the professional firefighters, as an attack on volunteerism. We hear from Peter Marshall, the Secretary of the UFU, as Victoria moves to the creation of Fire Rescue Victoria on July the 1st with new boundaries for the two services. We finish with a piece featuring the former Labor Premier of Western Australia, Carmen Lawrence, now a Professor of Psychological Science at the University of Western Australia, talking about crossing the divide when it comes to climate change action and a possible jobs guarantee. But first, some union news. Businesses that fail to pay staff superannuation have been given a free pass after the government secured support for its amnesty plan with the support of the Central Alliance Senators. Companies will be required to pay back unpaid super with interest under the reprieve but will avoid a fine of up to $10,000 or 12 months jail. Around 7,000 employers reported historical unpaid super to the Australian Tax Office after the amnesty was announced in May 2018. The government expects another 7,000 businesses to come forward under the super amnesty. The new rules apply retrospectively and the amnesty will expire six months after the bill gets royal assent. Businesses that fail to come forward during the amnesty will face the full penalty. The Australian Council of Trade Unions, the ACTU, President Michelle O'Neill said instead of punishing the employers who have been stealing money, they would receive no penalty. This law will recover a tiny fraction of the billions in superestimated stolen since the beginning of the system and will do nothing to change behaviour in the business community, Ms O'Neill said. The best way to stop wage and super theft is to allow unions to once again conduct compliance checks in workplaces to end this epidemic of ripping off workers. Industry Super Australia has estimated that $5.6 billion in super payments are not made annually. Labor wants amendments to the National Employment Standards, giving workers the right to chase employers directly for unpaid super, rather than going through the ATO and is flagging a private member's bill at a future date. Supermarket business Woolworths has admitted its staff underpayments have exceeded its worst estimates, blowing out to $315 million and likely to rise further. The number of workers to have been left out of pocket has also grown, up from the company's original estimate of 5,700 to 7,000. Woolworths' first half profit result dipped 7.7% to $887 million, despite a total revenue increase of 6% to $32.42 billion. 
Coles last week also owned up to underpaying staff. It is expecting a $20 million hit after managers at its supermarkets and liquor division were underpaid for six years. A 2019 KPMG report estimated that Australian workers could be underpaid by $1.35 billion each year, affecting 13% of the population. The Maritime Union of Australia has started a campaign to have the Aurora Australis repurposed to provide Australia and the Asia-Pacific region with a badly needed capacity in the event of an emergency. Dave Ball from the MUA explains. There was a couple of positives that always come out of a negative um, with the recent disaster we had with the fires and one of them was around a discussion around... um, the government purchasing the vessel called the Aurora Australis is the uh, original icebreaker that's been working down the ice for the last 20 years, taking scientists down to the ice to measure the impact us humans are having on the ice down there. And it has now gone out of commission. It's it's a fantastic vessel. It uh, has a hospital on board, has the ability to produce fresh water. It has storage tanks to produce thousands of litres of fuel. And it has 109 beds available on top of the cruise accommodation. So, yeah, which would be uh, it'd be a great emergency response vessel um, for situations like what we saw down in Malakud, where people had to be rescued from uh, the beach. Uh, and then in the uh, interim between these catastrophic disasters, it could be used as a training vessel down at the Maritime College in uh, Tassie, which would be. Uh, and it, it'd be great work for our members to be on doing that as well. Apparently, it's only worth about $4 million, I believe. But the MUA have set up a, a megaphone survey campaign. If you go to megaphone.org.au forward slash let's buy the Aurora Australis, you can go online and sign the survey for us. We'd really appreciate it. Make sure you do that, members. We really want to get this vessel purchased so that our members can continue to have jobs, we can respond to emergencies in Australia and it'd just be a fantastic asset. The number of people choosing to take up apprenticeships and traineeships has plummeted by a third since the Coalition took office, according to data from the Department of Education. Nationwide, the number of apprentices and trainees fell by more than 33% between September 2013 and March 2019. In South Australia, the figure is more than 50%. Under the last Labor government, numbers of apprentices and trainees never really dropped below 400,000, Shadow Education Minister Tanya Plebiset said. Under this government, they've been hovering around 270,000, and that's just not acceptable. A spokesperson for Skills Minister Michaela Cash said the government's skills package is investing in new initiatives to support the creation of 80,000 apprenticeships over five years. The package includes more than $200 million in incentives and other programs for employers to take on apprentices and $60 million in wage subsidies for the apprentices themselves. You're on Stick Together, Workers' Stories, Union News and Social Justice Issues. The United Firefighters Union, the UFU, has been fighting campaigns on several fronts. Today we focus on their fight to establish professional firefighting coverage of urban areas in Victoria. We hear from Peter Marshall, the Secretary of the UFU. We've gone from uh, a proposal back in 97-98, whereas the fire services were captured by corporate people, 
they actually did contract out the provision of fire services to uh, skilled engineering back in 97 in the CFA. They weren't to employ any more uh, professional firefighters in the CFA. Uh, it was only through a labour hire uh, organisation. Took us five years to return that work back to full-time employees, professional firefighters. At the same time, the Metropolitan Fire Brigade, they sought to actually provide a split, the same as what they did with the jails. That is that they have private sector run one, one fire station and the uh, public employees run the other to drive reform. And of course, that means uh, a race to the bottom. Again, there was uh, eight perimeter fire stations in the Metropolitan Fire area that they actually wanted to get uh, to uh, put that purchase provider split in. Uh, we were able to oppose that. Anyway, it's been a long journey, but uh, I don't know if you know, but traditionally there's been two fire services in Victoria, and that has been the Country Fire Authority and the uh, Metropolitan Fire Brigade. They were established by legislation uh, a long time ago, back in the uh, 1950, I think it was. Long and short of it is, the Metropolitan Fire District was defined by a certain distance from the general post office in the city, the GPO. And then Country Fire Authority area was everywhere outside that particular distance. Each year, up until 1972, there was a government committee that actually looked at growth in the uh, urban areas and made a recommendation that the Metropolitan Fire District with full professional firefighters actually extend their coverage. That committee was abolished in 1972, so essentially what you had was two pieces of legislation, one to look after country Victoria, the other to actually look after the Metropolitan Fire District in urbanised areas, MFB being full-time employees, the CFA being a combination of volunteers and full-time employees, but the enabling body that actually adjusted the boundaries, dependent on growth, when new housing suburbs come up, disappeared in 1972. So effectively what you had was two pieces of legislation stuck in time. Then what we seen was enormous growth occurring down the southeastern suburbs, out the western suburbs, to the point over the last 30 years there's been three attempts to reform the fire service to adjust it back to what it should have been, and that is that as the uh, metropolitan area increases, that you actually have professional fire coverage put in. Now, there's nothing, nothing wrong with volunteers. In fact, volunteers do a great job. We're not opposed to volunteers. But what actually happens is that when you get highly urbanised areas, the complexity, diversity and the frequency of the fire calls and the type of calls that the community actually uh, require that response to increases to such a level that the volunteer brigade is unable to cope with that. On top of that, then you've actually seen the evolution of time. We've seen the change in our society where work life, family pressures, everyone's working longer, uh, your family life balance, uh, that's actually increased to the point that people haven't got the time that they used to be able to have to give to volunteer organisations, not just the CFA, but all organisations. And then there's another problem that come into that. Traditionally, the CFA worked on a model where the cohort of volunteers lived within that area. In the fire industry, timing, response is critical. If you don't get there quick, the consequences are loss of life and damage to the property. People were no longer working in localised areas 
they were actually travelling out of there, where the, uh, the area where they lived, long distances to actually uh, conduct their working life. And that means they can't respond back to the fire station and respond to the call within the time frame. The standard response time to maximise the potential for saving life and property is 7.7 .7 minutes to 8 minutes from the time of call. After that, what happens is the fire evolves to a critical point, whereas it's no longer able to be contained to the room where it started, it actually evolves to what we call a flashover, and you've lost the property, and more than likely anyone inside. In the Metropolitan Fire District, most, uh, sorry, 89% of fires are contained to the room where they started. And that means that there's less danger to the firefighters going inside, there's also less danger to the community because you're able to perform a rescue rather than retrieve a person that's been perished. You can't have those arguments in the public arena because they're always coloured by emotive arguments that you're attacking volunteers. There's never been an attack on volunteers and if we just had a pure discussion in relation to what does the community need to ensure that they're protected, you people in this room, what does your family need to make sure that in the event you're unfortunate enough to have an emergency in the form of a fire or other type of uh, response we go to, what service do you need to ensure your family has got the maximum potential to survive and your property is not lost? And what you need is a critical response around 7.708 minutes. And if that's not being met, there's something wrong because at the end of the day you are playing Russian roulette with the lives of the public and indeed uh, the community members in that area. So that was the only argument that should be had, whether those key response criteria was being met. But the reforms to try and extend the boundary so as it's 24-hour professional coverage had not been achieved for well over 30 years. And the reason was, every time the debate was had in relation to whether the community was being protected, all the emotive stuff was thrown up about attack on volunteers. And it was in the interest of a lot of vested groups that they actually create that diversion from away from the real issue. I can tell you now, statistics and their critical statistics only started getting published, forced to legally by the union about 12 months ago, 18 months ago. And not far out of metropolitan area, just after Dandenong, uh, in an area down there, there is a 87% failure to meet those statistics. On about 30% of the occasions, they couldn't get a fire truck to respond at all. Now, if I was to tell you where country Victoria is in relation to the current fire service boundaries, you're going to get a bit of a shock because it's Springvale, it's Dandenong, it's Melton, it's Eltham, Bronya, it's Sunbury. The reality is Dandenong and Springvale is not country Victoria. Hoppers Crossing Melton is not country Victoria. These are huge growth areas. So the legislation had frozen in a point of time where the boundaries weren't being adjusted. So we ran a campaign and we lobbied long and hard and the Herald Sun had a dip every second day. In fact, we were 37 front page articles um, in about 50 odd days saying full of union thugs trying to take away uh, volunteer jobs. But at the end of the day, it was about our members' protection as well as the community's protection. 
because in some of those areas you were rely relying upon a dual response and that is that you'd have one career truck uh, respond to the call relying on a backup from a volunteer truck that never came. After much campaigning and many, many arguments and many disputes, we were able to achieve fire service reform in uh, June this year. Last year. Last year, that's how long a journey it's been. We now have what will be called Fire Rescue Victoria. And Fire Rescue Victoria will commence on July 1 and it will be a purely professional fire service that covers those growth areas that has been a 30-year campaign. You're on Stick Together, Workers' Stories, Union News and Social Justice Issues. Come and Lawrence, the former Labor Premier of Western Australia, now a Professor of Psychology Science at the University of Western Australia, was part of a panel at the recent Climate Emergency Summit talking about crossing the divide when it comes to climate change action and a possible jobs guarantee. This is what she said. When I thought about this question, mobilising across the divide and building a supermajority, the first question that occurred to me was, what is the divide? What are we talking about here? It's usually constructed around the acceptance or not of the occurrence of climate change. The reality is that most people accept that the climate is changing. There's a tiny minority who don't. Is it happening, in other words? And I have to say that divide is not a very large one. The major by far and away, the majority accept is it human-induced? And again, by far and away, the majority of Australians accept that and have done for a very long time. If you look back through the years, you'll see that survey after survey has confirmed that. The majority agree, have agreed and do agree, that climate change is real and that it's human-induced, at least to some extent. Sometimes the divide refers to whether people have concern or worry about the seriousness of climate change and whether they think there is a need for action and how imperative that is. And certainly you'll find a range of views about that, that even when people say they're concerned about climate change, perhaps when they vote, they don't necessarily act on it. It's not necessarily number one priority. It's there, along with worry about childhood obesity, perhaps. It's not number one. The environment's flipped up and down the charts when it comes to Australia's concern about it. It's probably been elevated a little. I wouldn't exaggerate the extent of it. By the, by the fires, and I'll come back to that in a minute. And it has waxed and waned over the years, from the 2007 election, where that was a climate change election, to it sort of disappearing from key consideration in recent elections. So there is a divide on concern and worry. People who are here, clearly deeply concerned, worried, and see the need to act. And sometimes it refers to the, the, the divide, that is, a willingness to support various actions to mitigate climate change, including both individual and policy responses. We see big variations in any community about whether people are prepared to accept certain changes to their uh, way of living, to their industries, to their employment, in order to achieve a reduction in emissions. Some people are more ready to accept it than others, and very often they can be shifted. That's something where attitude change can be achieved reasonably quickly, but it's also an area where people often have very strong roots in identity. So if you've been a coal worker all your life, your father and your grandfather have been, we've got to think about th those communities where we're asking them to shift very dramatically in not only what they do, but what they think about themselves. And human identity is one of those things that is often very difficult to budge. So at a superficial level, they'll move, but if your very identity is rooted in your employment, for example, or your place, 
then changes to that can be very threatening. And I guess that leads me then to ask, what predicts these views or propensities to act? Because that really gives us the, the power, if you like, as a movement to, to change. Obviously, what's critically important here, and we've seen this, is voting intentions and political ideology, underpinning which are values. We know the role of ideology is critical here, and it's not just about the, the party divide we see in Australia. It's across the globe. Uh, and when people support um, collective action and they're, if you like, collaborators, they're kind of left, if you like, they're more likely to support action on climate change than those who don't. And if the moral foundations are ones that they accept equality, justice and so on, then it's much easier for them to embrace climate change. But we found in work that I did with a, a young colleague, Isabel Rosson, that it's possible to speak to conservatives, particularly about harm and fairness, which they value highly. There's a, there's a rump, and they tend to be the deniers, who are free market fundamentalists. They're pr probably, we shouldn't even bother talking to them. But small c conservatives do care about harm and fairness and shouldn't be written off in this discussion. So that's a divide that's capable of being crossed if we talk uh, that language. And emotional engagement is important. And again, work I've done with some of my younger colleagues on the objects of care. If we can engage people uh, at the base of what it is that matters to them, and it may be about their identity, it may be about the, the natural environment, it may be about their community, there are a whole range of things about which people care deeply. They don't necessarily care about the, the objective characteristics of climate change, but the impact on their communities is profound, and that's what we've seen with the fires and the floods, that it's the threat. And I've done work on fire preparedness that shows very clearly that when people's places are threatened, they're more likely to take action to prepare their properties, for example, against the possibility of fire. So threat has to be there to those objects of care, but the emotional response is critical. If people don't give a shit, they're not going to act to protect the, the globe around them. And unfortunately, the sort of uh, political climate that we've created over a great many decades of individualism and people separating from one another, something that's accelerated perhaps by our social media, makes it more difficult. The critical thing here is that it's possible to bridge these divides by appeal to place, place protection, by appeal to the objects of care, by appeal to harm and fairness, and getting people to understand the fundamentals, if you like, of climate change, but not pointing out the weaknesses in other people's positions necessarily. It doesn't help. Most people don't like to be made to feel foolish. Most, the most powerful thing that any of us can do is to remember that we're social animals, and ultimately people respond to the fact, particularly that those around them are taking action on climate change. You, as the member of a family in a small social group, have at your disposal the greatest power in that group. And seeking to expose people to the views that you have, very clearly when we've looked at the research, it shows that as an individual, I judge the need to take action on climate change, including voting, legislation, etc., on the basis of what you think I should be doing. And so any public exposure of my actions... Uh, my voting intentions, my willingness to take action uh, within a small community that I value is likely to be very powerful indeed. We all know if you can point to the benefits of uh, moving away from burning fossil fuels in particular, uh, reducing the, the use of um, the conventional motor vehicles in our cities, it's the most underreported disease that we have in terms of public awareness, and that is the effect that air pollution has on the lungs, particularly of young children, and the bushfires have recently emphasised that. 
looking at the world through that frame changes a lot of people's minds, as I say, because of the question of harm and particularly harm to children. So the doctors, I think, have been fantastic. They've, they've made some very strong statements collectively about climate change and there's now a real push-on amongst those respiratory physicians who are interested particularly in childhood development to start to lean hard on politicians who are ignoring the problem. Um, I'm just wondering where something like a living wage might come into, um, you know, given that one of the biggest barriers is jobs and, um, and job loss and, and if that forms part of this discussion as well. It would make so much sense to be campaigning for a job guarantee in coal regions, like in areas where, where there is high levels of uh, coal employment um, and where they are going to be left high and dry. Like obviously the mining industry and their mates in parliament are really fond of using coal workers as a human shield to protect them from taking any responsibility for the consequences of their actions on everybody uh, and the failure to actually plan for the fact that the world wants to quit a thing that is, you know, killing people now and killing our climate as well. Um, so, like, in those areas, campaigning for some kind of job guarantee makes heaps and heaps of sense, I think, it would be a really good idea. Um, I, I think that a, a significant number of the people who, who, who complain about jobs, uh, in coal jobs, uh, are the people who complain about uh, or, or say that coal's going to lift Indians out of poverty or are worried about um, asylum seekers drowning. Um, I think they are a human shield uh, used. It is, it's very real for, um, for the, the coal workers, and I, I think Miriam's idea of a, coal, of a jobs guarantee for them is a really good way of, of neutralising that. Um, but we've you know, also got to accept, uh, just understand that it's being used as a tool uh, in, uh, in this debate, uh, and so finding ways to neutralise it's really important. Just, just to, sorry, just to add, add to that, I mean, I think the critical thing is that a lot of those workers have enjoyed very high wages. So we can't ignore that as a, as a potential negative for them. They, and I think you made this point to me, Rebecca, in conversation, that they look at the jobs in renewable energy and see them as kind of second-rate jobs compared to the ones they have. So addressing that question, I mean, they can't necessarily be sustained uh, with the sort of salaries that many of them have enjoyed in the resource sector, perhaps not so much now. And, you know, poor buggers, a lot of them have been fly in, fly out in my state in the, the oil and gas industry. They're pretty horrible social lives they live, but they do earn big wages. So it, you have to pay attention to that and a jobs guarantee might work. Although part of me says, you know, all the poor other buggers who've lost employment over the last, you know, 20, 30 years um, of changes to our economy have not had that sort of treatment. But if we're realistic and we want to achieve change in a way that doesn't, you know, have a huge wall of resistance, then I think we need to be very careful and thoughtful about that. That's it for Stick Together this week. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne. It's made possible through the financial support of the Community Radio Foundation and we come to you on the Community Radio Network through your local community radio station. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au or on iTunes and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 03 9419 8377. My name's Andy McLaughlin. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. And until next time, stick together. The 
They call it Stormy Monday But Tuesday's just as bad They call it Stormy Monday But Tuesday's just as bad Wednesday's worse And Thursday's also sad Yes, the eagle flies on Friday And Saturday I go out to play Well, the eagle flies on Friday And Saturday I go out to play Sunday I go to church Then I kneel down and pray